It allows us to do things that are higher value. It's going to make America more competitive and make these companies more competitive. So we're not replacing jobs, we're shifting responsibility. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Relay Human Cloud, a leading provider of staff hosting and related services to simplify and de-risk the process of adding remote overseas workers. Stay tuned to the end of this episode and you'll be able to hear more about Relay Human Cloud, what they do, and how they've helped businesses like mine, Fort Capital. We're offering an exclusive promo code for the fans of this show, so make sure to stick around for that to receive $500 off per employee per year. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E, junipersquare.com. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The first three-peat guest uh, in Fort's history, so welcome back. Uh, Andrew came up with this concept. Well, he told me about it a few years ago, but he's been tracking it forever. And it has to do with inflation and the Big Mac. So I'll stop there and let you take the ball from there. Why have you tracked the Big Mac as your source of data on the inflation rate and inflation in America? So for years, The Economist magazine had an index of Big Macs, and they used it to compare countries. So they would take the price of a Big Mac in different countries, and by looking at the price differential, they would tell which country was the most efficient. Um, I felt that there was a much more robust use of Big Mac prices, which were domestic. And then I was surprised to find out that the Big Mac prices in the United States had a huge variation. They, mm. they ranged literally from like $5.20 to almost $8. Um, and what, it, what I thought was, you know, we have this basket of goods we call the, uh, the CPI, and everyone is very excited about um, finding out what the CPI is and what the Fed's going to do with it. But the CPI is really antiquated because it, it's a basket that keeps changing. In other words, I can't say what did a phone cost in 1976 and what does a phone cost mm. today? What is a TV? What is even a car now? So I went back to the, the economist. I said, okay, here's a product that hasn't changed since 1967. It's created of a basket of goods that are labor, real estate, tax policy, 
advertising, transportation, commodities, and more importantly, it's consumed in exactly the same way. People put it in their mouth and they chew it. <laughs> so a few years ago, I picked, I, I realized I could actually find the prices of Big Macs very quickly on Uber Eats. Um, so I picked 22 McDonald's, virtually random, but kind of spread out around the country, urban, country, suburban, um, you know, as good a mix as I can. And I started tracking the prices of Big Macs. And what I found was very interesting is that it was, it was front-running inflation. So I could see inflation coming because a Big Mac price can be changed instantaneously. It's a digital board. But it takes the government a couple of months to kind of filter through all of the actual prices and then roll it up into a CPI. But the Big Macs were instantaneous. So I saw this huge inflation coming. Then I saw something interesting is that about six or seven months ago, inflation stopped, which was very, very interesting. The Big Macs stopped going up. So that would be prices. like July, August of 2022. Yes. Okay. And, and it was... It was surprising. So I saw CPI went up and then started leveling, started leveling off. And it was, it was the canary in the coal mine. Okay. And you can, anybody can go look at this now? Yeah. So there's a, there's a site called at Macflation, uh, M-A-C-flation um, on Instagram. And uh, you'll see my kind of witty, witty comments and uh, funny pictures. Okay. So um you've been tracking inflation obviously you saw the run-up coming and then what you just said it flatlined what yes. what, what, what am i supposed to interpret it from it flatlining and has it continued to stay flat today with the exception of last month so i, I look at the change month over month because okay. when you look at inflation if you say annual inflation used to be 7.1 percent and now it's 7.4 it sounds like only a difference of 0.3 yeah. But in, but to get that much difference in a month is a radical is a radical movement because that means in the last month it had to change a great deal. So with macflation, we could see what the month over month annualized rate of inflation really is. What's inflation now, not what was it six months ago? So what's surprising is that inflation has tempered. It's come down into the uh, the two or three percent range. Um, in, in a product that's so central to what people do and where they work and uh, how they consume things. And with, with, with an exception, there was one outlier month last month where it went up 20% annual, annualized. Um, I think we're going to see a tempering of inflation, which is very contrary to almost everything else I see and feel. But, but it is what it is. And nothing that you're seeing in that view right now would say that inflation is going to spike again as, as you currently look at it? I'm not seeing it in the Big Macs. As an intellectual, I could tell you that, that it should spike, yeah. but it's not actually happening on the street, on Main Street. Okay. As an in, why would an intellectual say that it should spike? Well, so someone who's a follower of Milton Friedman would say, look, the money supply grew at a rate that was faster than the economy. That's inflationary. And Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize. He said, always and everywhere. Um, and we've we've started, um, you know, we've started kind of ignoring his his teachings. Um, so he would have predicted, you know, massive increase, quantitative easing, increase in the money supply um, has to be inflationary. 
And yet, what we're seeing in the Big Mac is it's just not. We don't know why. And we don't know why. For the sake of today's conversation, there's nothing that you could draw that would say this is why it's happening? It's very confusing. Okay. But it is what it is. It's real. And and to be, from your perspective on inflation, is it really 7.1%, whatever it is, is it magnitudes higher than what the government's saying it is? Or like you said, it's an antiquated calculation. What is the real figure if if you had to say, is it double? Have we doubled the price of everything? It's interesting. And I'll tell you the problem with the CPI is it used to be the people worked five days a week in the office, <laughs> you know, and now they work three days a week for the same salary. Yeah. So you could say, uh, you know, and I won't get into, uh, you know, we used to call it work from home. Now we just are a little more honest. We call it hybrid. <laughs> hybrid means sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's like the engine in a Prius. It's not, it's, it's not working somewhere else. Um, but any, anyway, effectively companies started paying for three days at, at the same rate that they paid for five. So that would be massively inflationary from a, from a wage point of view. I think that that's coming back into Check. alignment. It was massive, um, from an inflationary standpoint on what people are getting paid. Did that also, was there also an impact that now that people aren't working four days a week, they have more time to spend money and, and buy things? Does that have any impact on what's going on? I, I think it's Netflix and chill, you yes, know, yes. in other words, they're not, they're not buying things. They're spending the time with TikTok and their dog and their cat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then let's kind of go down that road a little bit. We were talking a, a series of our conversations, um, and you have a really amazing lens into what's going on uh, with work in general based on one of your businesses, which is um, real estate and owning office buildings. But we were talking earlier at lunch and we just said, it's like um, it's like Christmas. We get to compete with companies that are now going to allow their people to only work from an office three days a week. Let's like expand on, you've now had two and a half years to observe this hybrid or work from home culture that's being created. And uh, I think Disney's CEO came out the other day and said, eh, everybody's coming back. You're starting to hear it. So what is your view on the workforce as we sit today? I think that we're, you know, th that companies are being overly politically correct, is that they're not able to just come out and say, these people who work for me are time bandits. Like they're, they're literally stealing time. They're not actually working. They're not actually home. They're not actually in front of a computer. They're not more productive. They certainly are not mentoring new um, new people. So I just, I can't believe how great it is to compete with companies <laughs> that only work three times, three days a week. It's unbelievable. Like the, the phone just does not get picked up on, on Fridays. And if you're in a, if you're in a service business, it's an amazing advantage. The other thing is that, you know, there's turnover in work. It's like if, if, you're, if you're honest about how many people come and go in a company, people are not spending their whole career here. So when a new person arrives and the office is empty 40%, 50% of, of the time, there's just no good way to onboard them. You know, it just doesn't, it, do, it doesn't work. So I think we're... You know the, the 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 companies that are that are going to survive are going to be back at back at work. We're gonna we're gonna look at this as a uh, an aberration and not kind of a new way of doing things. And are you starting to see any changes in just office leasing activity, or is there anything that uh, data point that you have to say that trend is now underway? 
Yeah, so we 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 saw, you know, and part of it was the pandemic. So there was there was a time when there was a real compelling reason not to be all together, but it was probably only a couple of months. Right. I mean, in 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 hindsight, and it was, you know, maybe six to nine months if we were really honest with ourselves, like when we should have called it, hey, it's a, it's over. And Texas did that earlier to its yeah. uh, to 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 its credit. But we're seeing a remarkable pickup in leasing. Um, you know, we're seeing um, tenants come back, um, come back into the offices for sure. It's less, the bigger the company and the more reliant they are on public transportation, the less they're coming back. Like, so those are still areas that are very concerning. Kind of the core downtown million square foot buildings um, have a problem. And do you have any solution for those buildings right now in your head? I think that they're just going to have to be um, changed. You know, I, I think that there's a model of a kind of a hybrid lofty work, work, live kind of space that takes advantage of the the deep bay depths. Um, you know, other, other, otherwise they're just going to have to be um, converted into something else. And is that something that you think cities are going to have to participate in in helping with their tax incentives or whatever to make the, the money work? Or do buildings just have to get cheaper and there has to be a better entry price? Because a lot of the conversation is, is it actually affordable to make the conversion, not to mention being able to do it at scale, but assuming you could do it at scale, how does it actually get financed? Well, it's it becomes affordable when the buildings are almost free. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's that's where they're going. I mean, we're we're seeing um, you know, buildings in in Manhattan that have negative values now. Like they they literally you literally would not want them if someone gave them to you in the core of even Houston and Dallas. Uh, you know, there are many buildings that that have no value. So they'll get they'll get washed up. Some of them are already doing that. They'll go through the the the, the lender meat grinder uh, and then they'll be delivered to people, uh, you know, for 10, 15, 20 dollars a foot. And then you'll be able to afford to do the conversion. Would you do that? Yes. You do. You you do the conversion. Yes. You've talked about the lender meat grinder with me actually a few times over the years, and it's usually like. Uh, the way you always explain it to me is like, yeah, the bank's going to take it. They're going to fumble it for a couple of years. And I'm I, I'm still about two to three years out. I'm going to get it. But they got to go through the what is the meat grinder to you? The meat grinder. It's like the uh, I guess if I was more in tune with my emotions, I would know it's like the nine <laughs> steps of <laughs> denial, loss, anger. You know, I forget what they all are. But, um, you know, the, the the lenders have to have to go through with it. There's a point where they just don't want the building because they realize it's a negative. And then they realize, hey, I can I can ignore all the things I'm supposed to do in the building just as well as the sponsor can. So then they take it, they cling to the value for a while, they go through a process. Um, someone convinces them that maybe they should put some money in it. And then kind of 18 months later, it's find me a live person who will take this. You know, and that's where that's the sweet spot where the deals are. Has the meat grinder even begun for call it uh, abandoned? We can talk about the the market in general. There's lots of asset classes, but we, if we're still going on this um, kind of defunct office product, has that has have you, have you even said the meat grinder has been turned on yet? It's been turned on. A lot of the buildings haven't transferred. Right. You know, I think the sophisticated. Um, borrowers, the sophisticated landlords have just thrown the building back. So you're seeing a lot of defaults 
um, and you're 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 seeing a lot of buildings that are kind of walking dead. Yeah. Um, you know, the problem with an office building, I mean, it's a it's a very big problem, is that when you put a new tenant in, you don't see net cash for years. Yeah. You know, so if I have a loan that's coming due or I know I'm underwater, there's no scenario where it makes sense to put a tenant in and pay a big expense to get the space ready. So what happens is it just becomes the the circle of disaster is that you don't sign new leases, then it gets worse, and then you don't sign more new leases, it gets worse, and then it becomes hopeless as a lot of the downtown buildings are now. I know in 08, the lenders took back a lot. I'm assuming lenders learned something in 08. Um, maybe they didn't want to own a ton of real estate. Are lenders just saying, yeah, I guess we'll take them back? I mean, I know in some cases they don't have a, a choice, but is there anything happening this cycle where the lenders are more um, likely to work with the borrower or the operator just to kind of keep things moving? Or I think that, that a lot of the buildings literally have no value. So yeah. there is no working. You know, in other words, you could keep giving them money. Yeah. Um, and, and while I think the lenders learned a lot, I mean, these are you know, these are smart people with access to a lot of cash. You, yeah, know, you yeah. can't, you can't make too much fun of them, but nobody, nobody saw the pandemic coming. And I think it would have been very surprising to people to think that even after it, there would be this movement away from the office. I, I think that, that with the office, there's something even more diabolical happening. And yeah. that's the way that people are using an office has changed. And it wasn't just the pandemic, it was happening before, but it used to be that someone had stuff. They had a lot of things in the office. They had printers, they had files, they had office equipment. Um, and now they basically move out every evening and move back in every mm -hmm. night. Like when someone leaves the office, they typically fold their laptop and they don't really need to ever come back to that location to do their um, to do to do their job, and and for a business that's in the space business, that's a problem. Yeah, how are y'all solving that? So the you know I, I I think it's really the way that people are solving a lot of other segments in um, you know in the real estate market is that you have to create a community. You have to kind of create something stimulating. You've got to create a place where people can interact. And this is, this is incredibly important with small tenants because if someone works for a big company, there's hundreds of, of people, there's a whole society. But if you work in a company with two or three people, um, it's pretty lonely. Yeah. You know, in other words, you will go to Starbucks and pay $4 for a cup of coffee just to be around strangers. Yeah. You know, it's the saddest thing in the world. Yep. Um, so, so we've got to kind of create that environment um, with the buildings. And it doesn't mean a gym and a conference room. So pandemic came. Uh, it was kind of happening before, but we can call it hybrid work. We can call it work from home. There's also the, the, the vacation. vacation. <laughs> Let's call it what it really is for is vacation. Uh, but the other part of this is a lot of people woke up and said, so you have inflation going on, you have people that aren't uh, working very hard, and then people started looking up going, but there's, does this even have to be done in America? If it doesn't have to be done from the office, why does it even have to be done in America? And this is something you and I have become uh, a lot closer on over the last few months is what you're doing with overseas talent. I think it's a fascinating conversation, especially for one, how you're using it, but how you think it's going to impact the world. And so 
let's kind of talk about what you're building at Relay Human Cloud. Our journey began about 12 years ago when I became extremely frustrated with the fact that it was so hard to hire people. And I felt like I was running a school for oil companies. You know, yeah. like my whole accounting department was like fish in a barrel for, for oil companies. People would come and just wallet whip them and off off they would go and you would wish them well and then you'd have to start again. Yep. So I went to to India and looked at a friend's operation. And I realized that a lot of the things, like we we were more in tune with not necessarily remote being from home, but remote being from other places. And if you're if you're running a portfolio of real estate, you have to be good at that anyway, because physically your buildings are by definition separate. So we went we went to India and we opened an office. We hired ten people. One person's job was just to provide tea for the other nine, <laughs> um, and we put them in the accounting in the accounting department. It worked phenomenally well. It was amazing. It cut 70 or 80% of our costs. Everyone worked together. So these were not people working from home. They weren't working for another service. They were direct um, employees and they were working together as a team, which was, which was very important. The other, the other thing that happened, which was kind of surprising, I mean, these things start off with, how can I save money? You know, and then you realize, wait a second, I can get amazing talent and amazing educated people who really want to work. The next thing that happened was very surprising is that we extended the time that we work. If you think about a cubicle, yeah. you know, what percentage of the year is that cubicle actually conducting work? And the answer is about 21%. So you think about it's eight hours over a uh, 24-hour period. So now we've lost two-thirds of everything. And we take away the weekends, we take away the vacations. So we've now lost about 79% of the possible time. So like we are the most inefficient group of people you can imagine. It's yeah. like we work 21% of the hours. So things take a long time to get done. When we added people in India, we started splitting the shifts. So we overlapped them and split them and we got to over 60%. So it was literally three times the speed that other people did things. Um, and, and, and that turned out to be as big an advantage of just saving money. We um, evolved. You know, we started in accounting. It's kind of an easy place to start. Then we said, what if we had a lawyer look at all of our leases? How great would that be? And the, the lawyer may cost, you know, five or six dollars an hour. Um, what if we had architects doing construction drawings? What if we had people working in the HR department um, going through resumes, even for people who were domestic? What if we gave every manager an assistant, an assistant manager who worked nights, you know, who did all of the details that they don't want to be stuck at their desk doing? And over the course of a decade, we ended up with 300 people supporting our, our real estate company. But we also ended up with a bunch of friends, family, clients who we hosted because people didn't want to go to India to start um, start a company for two or three people. So we would just throw them in and send them a bill from, from Dallas. And that's where the genesis of Relay started. And it's now in India, but you said it's all over the globe now? What we did is we started adding languages and time zones. So the first uh, new place that we expanded to was Honduras. Uh, Honduras has uh, this most beautiful island. It's one of the best. Any any professional divers know know this place. Um, 
but it's a former British colony and they still run their high schools in English. So the people speak perfect English and then where it's relevant, perfect Spanish. Um, they're also in our time zone. So we started putting leasing agents there and, and people doing a little more sophisticated work. Then we added Mexico City. We needed a place where someone could pop in anywhere in the United States overnight. We have a gigantic, I, I, I think there's like 20 million people in the metropolitan area there. there there's a lot of really spectacular talent to um, to choose from. So it's not, it's not one size fits all. You kind of match, are they going to talk to clients? What hours are they working? And do they need to be physically in the U.S. anytime? And the cost is basically what, 70 to 80 percent of what it would be in American dollars? Yeah. So what we what we did, it gets confusing when you start talking about the, uh, you know, the salaries, the benefits, the foreign currency issues, the office stuff. So we distilled it all into just one price um, and made it super, super easy. So it's okay. one price that covers everything. So it's almost like a cloud computer. If you need computing um, capacity, you call Amazon or Azure and you get a server, but you don't know what the electric bill is or what kind of cables they use or anything like that. Okay. Describe what it would be like to uh, hire someone kind of normally, just regular route, and then kind of y'all's mission uh, that we've talked about is like literally within minutes, you could have somebody hired and working with you. Hiring is a nightmare, and it's a nightmare that that we foist on the uh, you know largely on the HR department. Um, but the truth is that that if you decided right now I needed to hire someone for my accounting department, you'd have to come up with a job description. You'd have to decide where to post it. You would wait. You'd get a bunch of resumes. You'd have to pour through the resumes and you have to make appointments with each person. You have a, an interview with them and you take your candidates and, and then you start making offers, but you can't make an offer to everyone at the same time. So you got to make an offer to one. And the, the crime here is the adverse selection is that anyone who's still around after you finish this in six weeks <laughs> is probably horrible. I mean, honestly, you know, it's like, it would be like walking into a bar at 2 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we said, okay, let's let's turn this around. It's like let's let's think of the, let's solve all the problems, not just the cost problem. So what we did is we brought in people from the charter school movement. We created a boot camp, and we figured that that we want to work with these people for two months. And just like boot camp, if you ever remember, you know, an officer and a gentleman or, you know, any of these, um, these, these boot camp movies, you wash out a lot of people. Like this is your chance where you could fake it for a week, but you're not showing up for work every day for two months and then just becoming a flake. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So we created a curriculum. We created a, you know, a kind of a test, like, let's make sure that they're, they're real. We standardized all the resumes to look exactly the same. Obviously, the content's different. Yeah. And then we videoed interviews so that you could watch a preview of the person answering the 10 questions that you're going to ask them anyway. We list a price that includes absolutely everything. Like, literally, they're in our office, on our device, on our connection, salary, bonus, cricket uniform, motorcycle prize, um, cricket uniform, food. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're running like Google there. 
Right. You know, because we can't. I mean, like yeah. Google does all this stuff. They feed everyone. They spend four or five hundred million dollars a year on food. They can do it. Well, we can we can do that overseas. And then a client can look at a bench. So it becomes kind of like a coach in a football team. Like you turn around, you go, okay, there's two kickers there. I could just select one. And when I point at that person, they're on the field. So it takes takes a football player about 30 seconds to get from the bench to the huddle. It takes us about a minute, um, you know, to get someone who, who's been selected to just walk over, join a new team and start working. They're instant employees. Okay. So I say, I need a, a uh, somebody in accounting, this company give relay gives me a, Hey, here's 10 possible accountants. Well, you, you literally look at a bench. Okay. You know, so a bench could have 30 people on it. It could have 60 people and you, um, you filter by job description, you filter by experience, and then you see the, the candidates you see their, their, you can click on their resume, you can click on their interview, or you can just select them. And next to each candidate is the cost. It's a single cost sent to Dallas. So you're not, it's not really even an employee. You're not doing business overseas. You're not subject to any employment laws. And if for whatever reason it doesn't work out, you can send the person back to the bench. Okay. So I click this button and I say, this is who I want. What happens? So that person becomes your full-time employee. They're already at work, right? There's no negotiation. And, and if you happen to have a few people there already, they literally stand up and walk over and join your existing team. And they could be on your team for years at that point. Yes. We've had people who have been deployed for 10 years. I think we have people that have been on three or four, like hitting three, four year anniversaries. Yeah. So these, these are people, they're not a process. And they're at a building that y'all own. Yeah. So we don't, we don't own they're, the. Yes. But they're at a building that you. They're in our office. Um, so, so we're, we're responsible for a lot of things. We're responsible for a hundred percent of the compliance. We're responsible to make sure that they are at their desk during work hours, that they are not working for anyone else. The one thing that we can't see or do is tell them what to do or see what they're, right. they're doing, but that's none of our, that's none of our business. Right. Um, and when you add people to the team, it becomes literally a minute. And you can do this whether you have need one person or you need hundreds of people. Yeah. So what we what we realized is that there were people who had aspirations to build very large teams. So you don't want to go to India and set up an office for a hundred people and then hire two, you know, the first year and four the next year. Um, so what we did is we created this concept of taking the existing people and moving them into an enterprise when it gets big enough. So when you, when you hit about 50 full-time employees and you think you're going to a hundred, we're going to, we're going to kind of tap you on the shoulder and go, Hey, let's set up a wholly owned enterprise for you. We can do everything. We can turn key it for you. You could sign a paper once a year, or you can, you can take it from here and we'll send you the newsletter. Um, but we've had several, um, several companies do that where they've gotten, uh, you know, to a hundred pretty quickly. Okay, let's go back a second. You said um, assisted property manager and and you talked about leasing. Can you just explain in a little more depth how an assistant, pro like, because a lot of folks in America probably aren't thinking like, oh, this is actually a better way to use folks. They've always thought of it as 
uh, you know, there's one job, it's called a property manager and they show up to their desk every day and they do some things outside, some things inside. Y'all have started to think about how can roles be broken up to where both parties are getting the most out of each day. So like how would an assistant manager that's working overseas be beneficial to a property management company? If you think about an executive who has an assistant, yeah, uh, you know, who's back at the office and you're on the road all the time and stuff is coming in, bills, requests, even though you could type your own letters, you can pay your own bills, you can balance your checking account, you can call five people and, and arrange a conference. It just doesn't make sense. It's not an efficient time. Of, it's not an efficient use of your time. So we want our property managers to, number one, have a bigger portfolio. Number two, to be able to be out meeting people, talking to people, doing the things that you have to do physically there. But what we don't want them doing is filling out a, a, a key requisition or 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 taking invoices and and um, and coding them um, or following up on insurance certificates. Yep. Um, so this is, this is like, um, you know, an executive assistant who is totally in tune with the building. You're working with them, you know, over a long period of time, they know how you want to do it. You know, you know, how, um, how, how they work. Um, and it just makes people not only much more efficient, but it allows them to do the high value stuff. Here. So you could do this. It doesn't even have to be just for property management. I mean, pick a role in the company and you could almost have an assistant X. Yeah. So we have we have analysts who uh, work with our acquisitions and dispositions business. We've got all sorts of people in the HR department because like there are there are a lot of administrative things that have to be done to keep ourselves staffed, you know, where we have to be in, in the US. Um, we have um, in our in our leasing um, department. We've got people in Honduras who are responding to chats. They're responding to emails. They're taking phone calls. They're setting up tours. They're walking through lease, um, you know, lease issues. Uh, the world, the, the world doesn't want to do everything in person now. So these people can be very, very, very helpful. So if, if, if this was a nine inning ball game, I know the big companies have been doing this for a while. But you talk to a lot of small business owners today, and it's like they just heard about it. They're like, oh my gosh, you can go overseas. Where, how big is this opportunity? If I look at our company, you know, we have just over a thousand people, 300 of them are overseas. Okay. You know, so this is, this is a, a very big number, especially since so many of our employees have to physically be at the building. We're not like an accounting firm or a consulting company. Um, you know, we have security guards and maintenance people. Um, so I, I think that in the United States, we're going to need 50 million people servicing what we do in the U S who are based outside of the U S it's, it's really a profound number. And it's, it's like going back and talking about how many computers do we need? You know, if we were having that conversation in 1970, you know, the answer would be like 3 million, maybe. You know, how many computers do we need in the United States? Now it's like, how many computers do I need on my person at any given time? I got one in my watch, one in my phone, one on my AirTag, one, you know, one on my, my key fob. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very big. It's right now it's an advantage. Soon it's going to be a necessity. You know, at Boxer Property with 300 
people, we cut $18 million of costs out of our operating expenses. And that gets capitalized into the buildings. It's an advantage, but soon it's going to be a necessity. Like you go, like five years from now, it's almost table stakes if you're going to compete. Yeah, you can't. I mean, look, real estate was run. You go back to Pompeii, they had real estate. They, they had a place where the fishmonger rented space and, you know, but you could do real estate without a computer. Right. They've done it for thousands of years. Real estate has been operated without a computer. But like now, if, if you said, I'm going to run a real estate company, but I'm not going to use any computers, you'd be like, game over. If somebody said, oh, that's great, but what are all these American workers now going to do? We're shipping all the talent overseas. How would you respond to that? So I, I used to get a lot of that before there were no people applying for jobs. Yeah. You know, now you don't, <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear a lot of that anymore. But, you know, throughout, throughout society, there have been technological advancements like the backhoe. You go, oh, the backhoe is horrible. How are my children ever going to get jobs as ditch diggers? You know, and then we became a society that was coding a little more than, you know, running steel mills. So like, okay, great. Well, my kid can't be, work in a, a steel mill. Um, you know, computers, like you used to hear that computers were going to replace everybody. Um, and it just wasn't the case. They actually created an IT department, which is now very expensive. Um, so, so I think what it does is it makes us, it, it allows us to do things that are higher value. It's going to make America more competitive and make these companies more competitive. So we're not replacing jobs, we're shifting responsibility. And there's there's one other thing that I, you know, it was like another side effect that I got very excited about is I realized that my people in the US who may have been in like accounts payable or accounts receivable, and they were looking at a career of working alone in a cubicle and yeah. basically never having anyone to report to them. Well, now they very often have four or five people who are on their team. So we're turning people into really great managers. Yep. You know, in a way that you can't do, you can't just take a candidate and go, I'm going to make you a great manager. I'm going to give you four people to, to run in the US. Um, you know, we would never, we would never be able to do that. And speaking of managing, and I know how we do it at Fort, but for somebody to get context, India is the perfect time zone if you want to talk to someone. I think it's twice a day where it's like when we're leaving at night, they're kind of getting in in the morning. And when we are uh, getting in in the morning, they're leaving at night. So there's two points of communication. Like how are most people using the service to talk? There's what's called a split shift, which okay. is what you described. So you you typically in a, in a, in a best case scenario, you want to overlap with part of your team for a few hours. Yeah. Typ typically, the best part is our morning, their, their evening. Um, and, but you don't have to do that with everyone. Right. So if I have 50 accountants, I may have five of them on a split shift and the other ones are just working away, um, you know, during their, their day. And in terms of running it, like the best thing to, if you, if you treat these things like other companies, you know, it becomes like an organ donation It's like your body, your company is going to reject the organ. If you build teams that, that are very lateral, like the lawyers have a lawyer, the architects have architects, the accounts receivable have accounts receivable, then they become very invested in the people yeah. and they become very protective. 
Yep. So if I if I went into um, an accounting meeting and I said, God, could you believe those people in India? They are so they just never get it. Someone's going to be like, Hey, are you talking about my people? Yeah. Like what? It, what? What are you saying here? Yep. Um, and and that's that. I think uh, turned out to be the best practice. That's awesome. When you think about this from a uh, we've talked about it kind of from a business standpoint. I think I, my friends and folks that that I talk to, and I know Fort, it's almost people are just blown away every time they talk. For anybody that's listening, that's going, man, maybe this I could hire somebody overseas. Is it really that simple? Like if you've never done it, you can still get on, find a person, and and immediately they're working. What does somebody need to do that's never worked with somebody overseas? Maybe if you had to say, like, here's one or two things you should prepare your company for, have this conversation first, like, what would you tell them? That's a great question, because what we realized was if we told people to go prepare, it's like giving them a homework assignment, you know, and like, who wants to do that? So what we did is we we built um, about 40 model job descriptions. So you you log on to the site. You pick a job description. It could be construction supervisor or HR assistant or accounts payable clerk. Um, you pick that, and then you take what I call your red pen, because you just make it yours. So if you spend more than three or four minutes on this, you're spending too much yeah. time. Now you have a roadmap that's very granular about what the person's going to do, what their impact is on the company, the systems that they're using, things that they could do if they have time. Um, you know, it's like an owner's manual of a car. Yep. Um, and and it's directed right at the person. And the truth is, with a person, could be doing several things. Like the, the these are not a process. It's a person, so they can balance your checkbook and they can also uh, do invoices. So you yeah. can, you can do things like that. Then you pick a person. You know, we think it's better to start with two. It just it kind of gels better when people are working together as a as a team. And you start, but it's the, it's the least risky thing you can imagine doing. It's like taking an Uber, like you're not buying a car. You can take an Uber all the time, or you can stop doing it. And, yep. and the people can be returned to the bench. Um, what's interesting is they could be returned to the bench guilt-free because they, they make full salary during their training period. And if they're returned to the bench, not because they did something wrong, in which case they get cut from the team. Um, but if they return to the bench, they never lose a day of pay. They just sit in a different place Yep, in the same office until they get recruited again, until they get recruited. But the, so, so you can, and they can only work for one company at a time, only one company and only full time. Okay. And only physically present. Yep. So it's a, it's, it's really the, it's the CFO and the HR person's dream Yep. because it's so low impact on uh, the company. And as far as, uh, you know, any type of HR issue or something, assuming it's not the American company, you know, doing something, you know, illegal or berating people or whatever, like that's dealt with on your end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So every, everything, and it is, it is fun. It is like Google, like we, we, we have the best cricket oh, yeah. team in our area. Um, we celebrate every holiday. We give away scooters and motorcycles. There's free food. Um, the you know the facilities are beautiful. Um, the 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 working conditions are 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 amazing. You retain really good people by yeah. uh, by doing that. That's awesome. All right, uh, we're gonna we're gonna 
push it along. We're in 2023. Uh, we've just gone through a crazy uh, few years. Uh, every year has been exciting, but we're kind of entering and we can speak about uh, industry in general. We can talk about real estate. We can talk about oil and gas, but I just kind of want to spend, you're one of the most thoughtful people on just different things going on in the world. It's kind of uh, maybe the a loaded question is like, where is your attention right now business-wise or how are you approaching 2023? Um, you know, with all that's going on in, in the markets and you can take that question however you want. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a time to kind of turn inward in a lot of ways. Like in other words, I don't, I don't see this as a time to go out and start buying assets and putting down big bets. Um, it's a really good time to become more efficient. I, I refer to it as sheltering in place. You know, um, you kind of, you want to get ready for the game. Um, but the game hasn't, hasn't started yet necessarily. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about re things like relay, um, because it positions you for massive growth. You know, the truth is that like in the real estate business, if you buy a portfolio, if you're a car dealer, you buy another dealership, scaling is very hard. But if you have something where you, like, no one thinks about scaling their servers anymore yeah, because you just tell the IT department to get another server. Right. And it's instant. It's like literally instantaneous. We used to have to build rooms and cable and air conditioning and all of those things. So I think that there's a new discipline. You know, there was a um, money is not free anymore. Um, you know, and that brings that brings a lot of discipline to it is is that things have to happen. Things have to happen faster now to uh, to not have interest rates uh, eat you. Yeah, Sam Zell said at uh, the YPO roundtable this year, he was talking and he said, yeah, for the last six years, the cost of punting a project to next month was nothing. Now you can't punt work down the road anymore. Like if it's not getting done today, the clock's eating away. And that should instill, in theory, should instill a little bit more drive and like we got to get stuff done attitude. Um, yeah, so in, in, in the asset business, um, inflation can be very cruel in the short term and, and very forgiving in the long term. What do you mean by that? So if I own a building and, the, you know, my, my, uh, my interest rates are 3%, I kind of have a certain valuation there. If my interest rates go up to 6%, that's a 100% increase in my capital cost, but I can't raise my rates 100%. Mm. So what happens is the first year, you see a dip, and the second year a dip, the third year a dip, and then it starts equalizing because the rents start to catch up with inflation. And then if you can make it, if you can make it six or seven years, which is about as much time as it takes to get back to where you were in terms of covering your, your interest, then you really have something, is that you have an asset that's appreciating. So your, your building is making 6%, and it's going up 6% in value every year. Um, it's, re it's really a good, a good place to be, but you have to make it through the trough. And making it through the trough is different for everybody. Depending oh, it's on what horrible. asset class, where you're at. I mean, there's not one strategy to make it through the trough. Right, there's like blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, it is, it's hard because there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of pressure on asset value. So you said look within uh, shelter in place, and then you said it's it's why uh, getting your overseas team 
teed up allows you for like massive growth. And is that because right now you're able to think of what would it be like if we were buying assets back to every day? I remember your run and you can talk about it if you'd like, 09 to 12 or whatever years that you had that kind of historic run, you're imagining, okay, let's, uh, this is what it might look like again to play that game and let's just make sure the team is exactly where we want it. Yeah, so, and and it's more than the team is where you want it, it's your ability to scale up instantly. Yeah. Like, so I want, I want to be able to buy a portfolio and say, okay, I'm going to need a lot of accounting firepower. I'm going to have to analyze a bunch of leases. I'm going to be onboarding all of these things. I want to be able to have a just-in-time labor force to allow me to do that. Some of the things are going to have to be domestic, um, but having the ability to get instant employees overseas at a fraction of the cost, it allows me to move very quickly. So if I've challenged you and said, you said, well, the game hasn't started yet. There could be some guests on here that said the game started last July. I don't think I would agree with them. I've been a ton of activity back and forth. But in your opinion, what starts the game? Just time? Are we just waiting? Because where I get challenged by this is, and again, some of this is small talk, but even if I just took YPO, 400 CEOs from all over the country with big money and blah, blah, blah. And you generally ask them all like, well, what's the plan? Like, oh, well, we're well capitalized. We're just like getting ready for this huge real estate sale that's coming. We can see it in the distance. We, we're going to keep partying and hanging out and things are kind of boring right now. But it's like we all get to double dip. We get to like prepare, get well capitalized and buy stuff cheap. That doesn't feel right to me. Well, I think one 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 of the the things that wasn't there is a desperate bank. You know, when a bank had a one percent cost of capital, they could really let you float. Yeah, they could they could amend the um, the loan terms. They could extend give you extra time. Um, but now their cost of capital is going up, so their ability to do that is is disappearing right very quickly. Okay. And there was there was also a time when the regulators or in case of securitized loans, the investors were like very lax, like, okay, we're not going to enforce all the covenants. We're not going to run in and start filing things because the courts are are full. But those those days are coming to an end. Um, so so I think, you know, if we if we look at an 18 month period to kind of make sausage from from Wagyu or whatever we had uh, before, <laughs> you know, um, to whatever we had before, we're, we're, we're maybe a couple of months into it. You know, there's some sh shocking things going on. Like the, in Dallas, the Galleria, one of the, the two premium malls was just returned to the lender. It was like, it was hopeless. And, and this was a mall that would have been underwritten very conservatively by very sophisticated parties. Um, back it goes now are they going to fire sale it tomorrow no of course not but they're going to play the, the 18, 18 months month game yeah so maybe we're two months in maybe it's 16 months um you know there there are when 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 i go through downtown dallas i feel like um like heli joe osmond in the sixth sense or the seventh sense or whatever it was where he sees dead people yeah. i'm like these buildings look like they're functioning but they're actually dead and i know that they're dead they just look alive how do you know that they're dead? Because the economics is gone. Like they're they're a melting ice cube. You know, <laughs> there's nobody 
there's nobody there. There aren't even corpses. They're just they're just desks, you know, which are like headstones. And the companies, so they they die in slow motion, you know, like a, some a restaurant dies fast. It's like just people don't come and eat there. Yeah, you know, but uh, you know, a, a credit worthy office building with a series of ten year leases dies ten percent per year. Do you think there is a I'm not asking you to be a predictor of the future. Is there some like more obvious thing that will happen to get the party started? Or do we, is it literally we just have this front row seat? I mean, I kind of envisioned this tidal wave. It's like, yeah, it used to be farther. And now it's getting closer. It's a little bit bigger. But the hey, the, the music's still on at the beach. Margaritas are still being served. But like we kind of know where we're headed. I think the utilization of space is kind of the the leading indicator. OK, you know. Like a, a a restaurant where no one goes one day, you know, because there was some something on the news or slime in the ice machine or whatever, is going to look exactly the same the first day. But like, come back in a week, come back in a month, come back in a year, and you know, it's a, it's a, the circle of disaster. It's like they literally are circling the drain. So so these big buildings that are that that rely on people using public transportation to get to, to go to a cubicle that they don't leave. Um, you know, I, th I think that they're hopeless at this point. Suburban office, small, accessible, interactive, you know, um, really, really interesting. And in, in Texas, we may not see it as bad. Like in Texas, a downturn is like a bad haircut. <laughs> you know, like we're growing and growing and growing and, and you, you know, where people are, are, crossing the middle of the country in their Range Rovers, yeah, <laughs> you know, looking, looking for, a, you know, a cool restaurant, um, like flooding in. And then the workforce is flooding in as well. I realize we're, we're, we're busing people to, uh, you know, to New York and to, uh, Los Angeles as a, as a kind of a, a gimmick, but yeah. these are working age people very often. I think we're adding four or 500,000 people per year in texas yep you know it's That's good it's really amazing i i think since i moved to houston there's three million new people how, how houston's yeah. like the fourth largest city in the country isn't it it gets confusing because you never know where to draw the line right you know if you if you look at the metroplex dallas would be bigger than houston if you look at the city of houston but whatever it is they're growing and they're growing fast is Houston the healthiest you've ever seen it from a just a market standpoint? Maybe that, and what I don't mean is, uh, oh, in 2021, prices were better and everything else. I'm just talking about just in general, the whole landscape with the port starting to grow and oil and not being as dependent on oil and gas. Like, how do you judge Houston relating to how long you've been there, which is 30 or 30 plus years? I think we're growing as fast as our waistlines. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the new, uh, you know, That's someone it. suggested Houston's hot. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good way to recruit people to town. Yeah. So now we should switch to Houston's obese. Yeah. We are growing very fast. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it is. It's, it's funny because Houston has a reputation as the, energy, as the energy capital of the world, but they're really medical city. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like it's the largest medical um, facility concentration of of medical services on the planet. You know, if it wasn't for energy, we'd really have something going. Yeah. <laughs> but you also can't compete with Dallas and Austin. 
yeah. mean, these are amazing. Like when people come from out of town and they go, I'm thinking of moving to, to Texas, where should I go? I just say, are you over 40 or under 40? I'm going to make it real easy for you. Because if you're, if you're under 40, you're probably going to end up in Austin. You know, and if you're over 40, you're going to go to Dallas. And if you can't find a job in either place, you go to Houston. Yeah. I was talking to an, another guy the other day. You're in a, in a moment like this, you see a lot of uh, what he called stupidity being cleansed out of the the system. There's been a, like a lot of VC dollars. There's just been a lot of stupid things that got funded. Um, and when you think of things like Uber or you know, some of these services where they were basically being subsidized by VC dollars for a long time. And now as part of inflation, or you can attach it to that or not, you're just starting to see some things like come up to a normal price where an Uber is now twice as expensive as a cab. So the question to you is like, do you think the VC industry is going to be very quiet for a while? And is this another, I mean, you probably saw the doc, you were intimately involved in dot-com, but at that point, the technology really wasn't built. It really was hype. Is it different this time, this crash? I think ironically, what's going to bring the discipline back is interest rates. Because it used to be that if I made an investment 10 years ago in Uber, and I'm taking money out of a bank account that's earning 1% pre-tax, you know, so I've got like half a percent of walking around money, or I could bet on Uber and I could watch it for 10 years and hope that it makes something. Um, it's a tolerable bet. But when I can earn five, six, seven percent, uh, you know, relatively safely, um, waiting 10 years is is not is not fun. The SPACs were a great example of that. Is that the, the SPAC was like a free roll. It's like you tie your money up for two years and if it doesn't work out, you get your money back. And like, wow, what a great deal. But it's not a great deal if your opportunity cost is 7 or 8%. You know, it's very expensive. SPACs didn't really do well post-IPOing. They did well for everybody going in. Does that actually normalize itself into a vehicle that should become more the daily part of how we do business down the road? Or I think that there were, there's only like one out of 100 transactions that actually make sense yep. in a SPAC. Otherwise, it was just a, um, it was an offshoot of free money. Right. You know, yeah. like that's, that's what it was. It was, it was a, it was a free roll. Um, it was a free roll of the, uh, of the, of the dice and we're just not going to see it anymore. Is it fair to say we're in a recession in your opinion? Like, are we, or are we not? <laughs> well, that's, that's what it feels like when you're going over the top on a roller coaster. You're like, we're not going up and we're not going down. <laughs> <laughs> but it always goes one way in the end when you feel that way. So are we you going, know where it's going? Where are we right now? I would have bet on a big recession before I started objectively having to look at the Big Mac index. Yeah. Um, so I think I think we're in for a readjustment is that we need some discipline, is that money costs money. Yep. You know, and you don't get free time and we can't rely on cap rates to make things more valuable. Like that was that was crazy. You'd build something to a, a five and sell it at a three and you'd make a 40% profit, you know, like that. And not operate at all. That's not, that's not available. That window, that window has closed and the, the house has disappeared. And if you took on a bunch of floating rate debt, buying three and a half, four cap deals, hoping to stabilize them. And those, those might be some of the first assets to come back as well. 
the floating rate debt is is very um, is very troubling now because it could still go up. But again, I, I you know looking looking at Big Mac prices, I'm just not sure that we're going to get the inflation that we deserved. And and I say deserved in a bad way, you know, it's yeah. like we're not we're not getting the punishment um, that that we should be getting. And do you think it'll always be this thing that nobody can fully understand why inflation hasn't done what it's done? Is is it, are we in a new time when technology's been able to be efficient enough to keep things low, or like are we just forever going to not be able to understand why it's not going higher? There's a funny thing going on because. There's a perception in the United States that the Fed sets interest rates. And they set a rate, but it's a rate that's virtually not used. It's the Fed funds rate, um, the, uh, the, I'm sorry, the overnight rate that banks can borrow when they get in trouble. But if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, there's virtually none, no money at that rate. And if, if a Fed could just set rates, then Argentina would rule the world. Like, in other words, they wouldn't have... 200% inflation, the Argentine, Argentines, the Argentines have a Fed and the Nigerians have a Fed and the Zimbabweans have a Fed. Um, you know, so, so we've got to get away from this feeling like the biggest borrower in the history of borrowing is actually setting the rates. Um, but as long as everyone believes it, if you think Kim Kardashian is going to tell you what to wear next season, then she is. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Let me put my rookie hat on. Why does it not work in Argentina, Zimbabwe, Nigeria? Because people don't believe it should. Is it all belief? It seems to be a miss. Um, there's a, there's a misunderstanding in what the Fed is actually doing. It starts off with the fact that we think of the Fed as a separate entity, you know, but they're not. They are they're owned by the United States government. They should be under any rational accounting, they should be consolidated. And when you consolidate them and, and realize that the rate that they're setting is not actually connected to the market, then it's going to be like the emperor's new clothes. You know, and I, I guess that makes me the little boy saying, hey, you know, the empire's new clothes, this is, they're naked. You know, they're not, they're not actually setting rates. Now, Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize for explaining this to everyone. He did a PBS series. He wrote a best-selling book. He went on a lecture circuit and, and he explained it, but he's not, he's not here to, uh, you know, to, to correct everyone's misperceptions. I'm not sure that we want to correct everyone's misperceptions. Like it's, it may allow us to kind of enter into a soft landing. If I tell you, I think this is where you were going on this. Um, and I was actually talking about this the other day with social media and just the, the constant, like, I wouldn't say just bad news all day, every day. But if you look at like uh, what happened with Columbine, the, it was kind of the first school shooting that re we really took note of as a country. And I think that was in the early 2000s. I mean, it happened. And I remember like being freaked out for like a month. I mean, the, the, the way it zapped America, it was and it, it it was horrific. Fast forward twenty two years later, it's like you hear about one a day. I mean, it's, you're numb to it. I I think there's something more profound that we have to be concerned about, which is we are just flat out becoming Americans. We are becoming Italians, like which, which means we used to be the Romans, 
And now we're the Italians. Yeah. And it's very hard to recognize the Romans when you go to Italy. It's like a really fun place to hang out and drink coffee and, you know, to talk about fashion. And But, like, they're not aspirational to rule the world yeah. um, any anymore. And we in America are are now, like, laser-focused on working less and and having shorter days and having free goodies from the, um, from, from the government. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very big problem. And we're also desensitized to like, I think where you were going earlier was like, maybe we, maybe we don't want to, um, I think you said like, hear what Milton has to say is like, as long as we just keep believing that everything could be okay, maybe it is, a, that is what gets us to a soft landing rather than buying into like, we're headed to hell and everybody has to believe it kind of the analogy i was making with a school shooting or something is it used to be something that was that was just a lot more it it felt like it hit people harder and now everybody's so desensitized to everything it's like what is the thing that could rile this country really up i think it's going to be um you know the realization that that our productivity is is really in decline can we change that i i think we can and it may it may just take a couple of of leaders and and there are leaders out there. There are guys like Jeff Bezos at Amazon, you know, who's who's totally um totally focused on on efficiency and and on logistics, um, you know, and proud, proud, proud of it. Um, there are guys like Bob Iger who's kind of calling calling his people back to work. He's just saying, hey, you've got to, you've got to come, you've got to come back. So it's it's possible to recover, but only one society has ever done it which was china would you say they did it because of their authoritarian rule or because they were able to do something that america could could implement as well it's hard to say i mean that's that's a whole thing but like i could tell you when the when the library of alexandria egypt burnt down people were probably like hey we're gonna we're on this we're gonna build it back we'll be ruling the world very soon and and it just didn't happen like yeah. the romans used to rule the world the british used to rule the world um, you know, there, there were societies in sub-Saharan Africa that were, that were, that were incredibly, um, successful. Um, so it's just, we can, we can delay it. It may not be possible to stop it, but delaying it may mean pushing it back a hundred years, which in, at my age, uh, works fine. Yeah. Um, all right. Another topic. It's a four letter word for some people these days, um, oil and gas. Seems like there's a huge opportunity here. We Did, need it more than ever. No capital flowing into it. Um, depleting supply. And it's something that we've talked a lot about. How are you approaching oil and gas? I think oil and gas is the deal of the century. I mean, it is the returns on oil and gas are so extreme that you don't even have to talk about the future. Right. You have companies that are literally turning into cash. Um, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, like there, there, there are there are oil and gas companies where the yield is so high that you get all of your money back in three years or four mm -hmm. years. So we could talk about the future. Where's the power going to go? Are people going to be driving cars or drones going to be using diesel? You know, but it doesn't it doesn't matter because it's not the horizon is the horizon of of making a profit is so much shorter than any rational person would talk about that. The, the interesting thing, like when you look at the, I mean, there's, a, there, there, there are a bunch of, of really well-run 
companies like Crescent and Sandridge, um, you know, that ha have exponentially high returns, but the market hates them. And when I when I talk to people in other parts of the country, like when you talk to people in Texas, they're a little confused by the whole thing. They're like, well, why would anyone, you know, why why wouldn't people invest in that? Yeah. And to the rest of, to a lot of the developed world, it's like pornography. Yeah. You know, in other words, they just don't care. Like if someone came to me and said, hey, you should buy this great porn <laughs> channel, you know, I would be like, no, you don't even have to tell me what the return is. Like, no, my, my kids wouldn't have any friends come over. Yeah. Um, but if you, you know, if you're in certain parts of the country in certain parts of the world and you're, uh, you know, you're producing oil and natural gas, people will drive their Range Rovers away from you in droves. So if I told you, okay, you're right but there's not a lot of liquidity in the system. Like you can go buy these high yielding is the play to just buy these, uh, these stocks or whatever, and just let them keep paying dividends until like, just milk them for everything. Like, is that the player in your position? Have you seen throughout your career liquidity will be back? Or is this an, like, as you see it right now, is like, there's nothing showing me that money's headed back into this industry anytime soon. I just don't see a lot of liquidity coming back, which makes the deals better and better, surprisingly. But you have to ignore the stock price. Like, in, in other words, you, you just have to ignore the fact that the market's not going to realize this. Now, look, at a certain point, it starts off as oil and becomes cash. So people may not like natural gas, but they do like cash and they can, they can explain it. A company like Sandridge is probably half cash right now. I mean, it's, and it will be full cash, you know, I would guess in 36 months, um, or certainly equal to, uh, to, to, to the share price. So I think you just have to, you've got to just do it and, um, you know, enjoy the, uh, enjoy the, the, the dividends. Um, any, anyone who has money for it is a hundred percent invested, you know, and the world is kind of moving away from it. It's just, it's not worth it for the Blackstones and the Apollos and the, and the pension funds to mess with it because it's a small part of their, their universe and will alienate a big part of their investment group. Have you ever seen that happen across any other asset classes? I think that there have been things that have been just unpopular, you yeah. know, for, for many reasons, airlines, you know, like people who've been burnt in airlines just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. They just feel like it's not, um, it's not there. There are some things that are somewhat distasteful, like mining, um, you know, where people may just decide I don't want to be part of it. Tobacco is another thing. And so, some of these things I don't like. So I'm not, I'm yeah. not saying that these are all great products. I may defend someone's right to use these products, but I probably don't want to invest in a vaping company. You don't want to be the king of vapor. I don't want to be the king of vapor. Or cigarettes. Right. <laughs> or porn for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> or porn. But there is a market for them. It's just, it's, it's always interesting when you throw the energy and oil and gas conversation and there is, um, you know, it's not killing. It's, it's helping us thrive as a, as a, as a globe. We've needed it for a long time. Um, yeah. And, and look, I, I think it will evolve, but again, the return is so short. You don't even have to talk about it. Like if you build a building, you don't get your money back pretty much ever, 
you know, like uh, 10 years, 20 years. I mean, you really have to know what the market's um, going to happen before you've returned 100% of your your capital, not through a sale or through refinancing, just through cash flow. But oil and gas, it's a couple of years. Okay. Is there anything else that is at the top of your mind for this year, markets, investing, just you always seem to have a pulse on something that I haven't thought about. Is there anything else you've been talking to people about regularly that most people wouldn't know about? I think the 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 labor arbitrage is the most interesting thing, is that labor is a massive component of virtually every business. Yep. In the United States, it's even bigger because of the labor rules and the labor rates, um, is that if we can solve for that, um, we're going to be a very competitive. Um, we're going to we're going to be a very competitive society. So it's not about losing jobs. It's about creating jobs. It's about it's about really being able to compete with foreign banks and foreign car manufacturers and and um, um, software developers. Um, we can we can keep the the um, the leadership here. And, and, and we can really move the needle. Like there's just very few things where I could say, Hey, this will make me 70% more efficient. Yeah. Like you just don't run into things in, in the world that move the needle that fast. And when you say like, if we can get there or when we get there, what does that getting there looks like? It just, it's second nature to the business community in America that this is how we do business now. I think it's gotta be accepted. So people have to get over, oh, are we going to lose jobs? No, we're not going to lose jobs. We're making jobs. We're making the jobs that are here much more meaningful and, and effective. And, um, I think increasing the development of our own, of our, of our own people. But thank God that we speak English. You know, it's kind of like the internet, the internet's in English. Like if you're Dutch, you can go to a corner of the internet, but like, there is no full Wikipedia and, and all, you know, all of the, um, the stuff, the fact that we speak English and the British ran around the world colonizing things, you know, again, not their best moment in a lot of ways, but what it means is that there's a club that can communicate with each other. Yep. And, and that's going to be a huge advantage over some of the other countries. All right. I was, I was saving this for, for, um, towards the end crypto. So we talked, I, I can't even fully regurgitate the conversation, but we maybe talked a year, year and a half ago when it was at the top of where it had been to date. And you just said, I don't know if it wasn't, you weren't buying it, but you just said there could be a lot of legal ramifications that people haven't thought about yet. Uh, I can't even remember what they all were, but you knew them very well. And then we've just kind of gone through what you would call a black swan event, maybe in crypto with the FTX debacle. And we're still going to learn how plugged in he was to all these other crypto. Uh, but it's gotten a lot cheaper. Is it still a turd? Um, did the same risk still out there from your perspective? Like, have you changed your mind at all on crypto? I think the crypto is at its base evil. Like, it's very bad. It's illegal. Um, you know, it's it violates all of the banking laws. And, you know, there's some things that that come out and break things and then fix them, you know, like Uber maybe shouldn't have been operating in downtown San Francisco, but they kind of got there and created a 
um, a place for themselves. Crypto is just illegal. Like there are there are laws that it violates. That FTX was massively violating. They were playing a game that was so cute, you know, with the, the guy with the, the tube socks and the, and the shirts and the the, the the you know afro yeah um, hairdo. Um, you know that was that was just like illegal. And he was like, "Oh, I'm in the Bahamas, so I'm not really doing business in the United States." But like, you watch Major League Baseball, and it's got the name on the on the thing, the name on the stadium. Like they're literally doing business here as a bank totally illegally and you know the and the, you believe that he knew he was doing something illegal i think that that these crypto transactions so for example when you send something of value to a terrorist organization like a russian hacker you are committing a crime you're violating the patriot act you're violating the banking acts um you know you just can't do this and the fact that the the government wasn't enforcing it before i think could change very quickly and why weren't they enforcing it because they couldn't i think that it was kind of uncool to get in front of something that looked creative yeah um until you kind of realize what's going on like it's it's a it's a way of transferring money between criminal enterprises that that apparently is very effective um but you can't you can't spend it. You can't go into a store. It's like it's it's way too volatile um, to use as a pricing mechanism. And you can make all the fun of the U.S. dollar that you want, but the truth is they've got marshals and jails and court systems to enforce. You know who owns it, and 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 that someone didn't fake it, and that someone didn't take it from you, and they accept it as payment for taxes. So you get to live in the United States in exchange for this thing that we're making fun of. Um, so, so I, I've always really disliked, um, cryptocurrency. I, I, I think the, we're just starting to see, um, the government, uh, turn, turn, turn on them and it's going to end extremely badly for, for crypto. And I'm trying to remember, cause I think you just touched on a piece of it. But there was something else that we talked about last time, and you made this case of why it's there's other reasons why it's illegal. And I cannot remember what you told me, but is um, I guess I'll just ask, like, is there any other reasons why it's illegal? You had this one case last summer. You're the first person that had talked to me that way about it. So look, if if somebody is sending a hacker a ransom in crypto, that's illegal. That's illegal. Okay. They're they're breaking a lot of laws because you don't know like you could be sending it to North Korea, you could be sending it to Russia now, you could be um, you could be doing a lot of things. You're not sending them a 1099. You're not reporting the the income. You're not withholding money when you make a transfer to a foreign um, government. You have to with uh, not to a government to a foreign person. You have to withhold the tax. But the most insidious thing is that they are using that money to hack other people. And the people who are paying them have a responsibility for that. And and so you think there could be a chain reaction where if you fall in line of that money chain, you can be responsible for somebody's illegal actions down the road. I mean, if I were sending money to Al Qaeda because, <laughs> you know, they were holding my 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 uh, my data, yeah. you know, and they use that money to attack other people is that there's a liability.
there's a liability there. Like you can see, um, you know, the, um, I think the Virgin Islands are suing JP Morgan for banking. Um, what was the guy's name? The, Epstein. uh, Epstein, the pedophile. Like, in other words, just merely banking him gave rise to human trafficking, according to that, you know, that government crypto is, is just filled with this, this kind of thing. Um, so I don't, I don't like it. I can't make fun of it. You know, in other words, I realize that it has a value that you can make fun of or not, you know, what is it or like NFTs, you know, it's hard for me to sometimes, um, differentiate a Bitcoin from a Warhol, you know, in other words, it's uh, the, the, the difference between a Warhol and, and, you know, a piece is a Warhol is like $7 of material, you know, and it's worth $70 million sometimes. Um, why is that? It's because someone appreciates it. Um, so, so I understand that there are new things that could have value. I just don't like the way it's used. If you had to make a guess, maybe FTX is the impetus of it, though, that there will be a lot of regulation that comes out, which at the same time defeats the purpose of why it was invented in the first place, which was supposed to be this deregulated thing. Well, like, look, you know, who would want to pay taxes? <laughs> you know, like, Donnie, do you like paying taxes? Okay. Oh, it's such a pain to to uh, to follow all the laws, you know. But but the same laws that apply to our banks apply to this crypto universe. They just have not been enforced yet, and and this may be what what pokes the bear. You know, when the bear wakes up, there's going to be a lot of explaining to do. You know, across the the universe, and the people who think that they can avoid it because they're offshore, they're not dealing in the U.S. Are going to find themselves in a cell next to to, to Sam Bankman-Fried if he goes to jail. If he goes to jail, that's the that's the craziest part. Is they're making it sound like he might not be found guilty or something. He may not. Like, look, I have I haven't reviewed. I the, actually think that's. In, I think if I my conspiracy uh, tinfoil hat comes on and thinks maybe the government used Sam as a pawn to implode the whole industry. Because if you look at where all the dollars were coming in and out of, they're connected to, you know, maybe they said, yeah, we'll use him and we'll crash the whole market. And If nothing else, he had to live with his parents as yeah. an adult, you know. And his, and his, I read this morning he was uh, favoring food from like Miami. He'd fly it in on jets because nobody would deliver to the island he was on. So he was doing well for a bit. Um, all right. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I think this would be a good spot to, to bring it home. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on, and now we sit here today in 2022, at the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees, now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to 
how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a uh, global workforce. It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that, that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, 
tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us, right? right? And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24-hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew, that we worked with daily, that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, ha it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And and that that's a good point. And I think the, what what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.